0: on this is radio 1190 kvcu boulder
1: Welcome in ladies and gentlemen. We've missed you. We have missed you this week. It's been fun. You know nice three four days I gotta say this has probably been one of the best weekends or best weeks of pregame I've seen at Colorado this year. It's been really really amazing and I'm impressed Andrew Hobner here with Jake Shapiro Mr. Shapalicious.
2: Shap. How you been, man? I'm good. The, the buzz on campus is uh, uh, palpable. Palpable? Palpable. <laughs> um, you are uh, Mr. Andrew Hobner over there. Uh, you can follow Andrew on Twitter at A underscore G underscore Hobner. Uh, Good luck spelling that. Uh, It's actually pretty easy. Uh, (laughs) Andrew, I've been great. I've had a great week. We we had that uh, our our first show Monday together. uh, Golden, what do we call that? Buffalo Sports Radio. That was that was a great show running from six to seven. Join us next Monday. We'll have the recap of the Oregon game. And you know, I'm filling in for uh, Joe Paris right now. We're going six to eight, and we have some great content coming for you.
1: Yeah, this will be a fun show for you guys. We are going to be joined tonight by Adam Amin, ESPN Play by Play announcer. He will be doing the play by play for See You in Oregon tomorrow night in the 7 o'clock hour. It is all basketball all the time. Basketball just opened their season uh, today in practices, so Josh Scott will be joining us at 7:10 to answer a couple questions and fan questions if you guys have them. The All Buffs guys, uh, you got a thread up on the football message boards. So if you have any questions for Josh Scott, you can put them there. You can tweet us at shapilicious or, as we said, at a underscore g underscore hobner, and the rumbling Buffalo himself, Ben Burrows. He will be joining us at 7:30 talking about. What goes behind building what is probably the most massive preview for all of CU sports at anything, and also analyzing some of Josh
2: Scott's comments and a couple of Tad Boils from today. Yeah, we were talking today at practice about Ben, and you know, you and I were saying, "Wow, you know, Ben's one of the only guys I trust outside of the media with basketball coverage. He is spot on with his opinions. He normally nails it, and I normally agree with him. He, he he's one of my." Uh, Uh, one of the people I I have to read when they release a column
1: yeah I agree there's there's two there's two guys that I really enjoy reading um, on the basketball uh, boards and from from all buffs and just blogs in general Ben Burroughs is one of them and and James Lucas Goose on, at CU Goose, at CU Goose. Yeah, I I think that he he kind of takes a more analytical look at a lot of uh, CU basketball, and I personally love it. I think it's great. I think it's a take that a lot of people don't really see. And we're pretty fortunate in Boulder to have guys to kind of supplement people like you and me, Ryan, Adam, uh, the rest of the general CEO media guys that care about the team and can write.
2: We're fortunate that, you know, as you say, we live in a pretty big media market. We get to cover a team that's undercovered. That's why we're covering them right now. Uh, We have this great prime radio spot. Uh, We get to cover them sufficiently, hopefully, to you guys. And we get to talk about them. And we, we we get to be on this awesome stage that few get at our age as well as uh, you know covering a team that has a lot of people that care about them and they uh, and a lot of people that want to get involved
1: yeah and so Basketball's coming in the 7 o'clock hour. 6-7 is going to be all football. After a fantastic Rocky Mountain showdown win, 27-24 against Colorado State, the Buffs are now playing Oregon. Now, the whole reason I bring up Colorado State and I don't pay much attention to Nichols is you take games in terms of impact, right, Jake? You know, you look at how big these games are in terms of Coach Max' uh, prospects as a head coach, CU's prospects as turning the por- uh, corner of their program turning that page and when my contention is CSU was the defining game of the season for all the wrong reasons Oregon is the defining game for all the right reasons and the reason I say that is CSU had uh, The conversation going around that was if we lose coach max on the hot seat this team is back in the dumps uh, You know call the season off. It's over this game is Is impactful for all the right reasons we win this game we're back in national prominence for however long a time we've turned a little bit of a corner we're back and relevant in the eyes of the Pac-12 bull bid is somewhat reachable
2: again it's impactful for the right reasons they get this one upset and you're looking at the schedule and there's a very good chance that colorado can beat both washington state and oregon state those are two probable games and both of those are on the road that's not even counting the rest of the home slate so if they win this game and they're four and one heading into the rest of pac-12 play with only one game down in pac-12 play i, I don't want to say a bowl is almost guaranteed but they're they have a very very good the probable shot at a bowl the difference between four and one, and three and two, is massive. I will say that, uh, especially when you look at it this way. You know, uh, we were talking about this on Twitter this week. CU Twitter was talking about this, whether or not CU would receive votes in the top 25 if they were to win this game. I believe they might receive a vote or two votes or three. You know, nothing substantial. But they would really need to win. You know, go go five and one or, or, or six and one to get into that top 25, bottom of the top 25, high votes receiving range Uh, but but we'll see Uh, it all depends on this game if CU really puts a hurting on Oregon I think a lot can change and uh, if CU plays them close it's a little bit of a different situation but you know if CU doesn't CU has to win this game for all those things to happen and that's not a hard that's not an easy task I mean even at home They're still an underdog. Yes, it's only seven points compared to the 30 points Mm -hmm. it's been in the last few years, but they're still an underdog at home.
1: Well, you know what's really interesting to me is how many experts are picking Colorado to win this. Shocking. Phil Steele's computer picked it. SVP picked it on SportsCenter. And, uh, you know, our buddy Ryan Konigsberg at BSN Denver actually got a response out of uh, Van Pelt, who said, you know, I just talk nonsensical things, blah, blah, blah. He's not a fool. He's not just going to throw those picks out there for no reason. Van has got real money
2: riding on the game. (laughs) Exactly.
1: He sees something here, and a lot of the national media sees something here, and that's something that really, really surprises me. And I'm impressed with how well Colorado— I don't know if it's an indictment on how bad Oregon has played or how much people think they've fallen off or how much faith people have in Colorado. I think in the Colorado area, people have faith in the Buffs. I think outside of it, people— Have faith, but it's tempered with this feeling that Oregon might be on the way out.
2: I almost would say the opposite about the Buffs, and that's why we're gonna have uh, Adam Amin on, because I wanna have his national perspective on the Buffs. I'm very curious as to see what he thinks, because right now, I think a lot of Buffs fans are more cautious than the general public, because the the Buffs fans have seen this team up close and personal lose game after game for the last about 10 years, whereas the national media has has seen it from afar. It's a little bit different, and now they see the Buffs as an up-and-coming team, when in reality, the Buffs are three and one, They've beaten two far inferior teams. Uh, They lost a a game they could have won, and they won a game they could have lost. So you could look at it a a bunch of different ways, but where we're sitting right now, the Buffs could easily not have the record they have, or they could be even better. And, you know, I I think a lot of people's faith is... It, it, it's it's in a strange place because I think a lot of people in the CU community are drinking the Kool-Aid, but they're being cautiously optimistic about this game. You know, they see that all these people are picking CU and they're like, oh, that's so cool, that's so cool. But then you're like, oh, man, but remember Oregon. They're getting all these five-star recruits and CU's out there trouting out Sefo Lufau and guys that are, you know, maybe not as high quality caliber uh of players and have the same high caliber of talent and you know you're kind of like oh well can they really do this and why is vegas have the spread so low does vegas know something you, you know you're kind of running through this whole stream of thoughts and it's really interesting to see where cu fans uh heads are at right now because there's a lot of people that do think we can win this game or CU can win this game and I, I don't really know personally, and I want to hear the national perspective on this because, you know, national, I think more national people are picking the buffs to win than local people. And that's really interesting to me because we've seen Oregon murder the Hell buffs the last nice few years. You. It Hell hasn't done. been close. Yep. It has, they've covered the spread every year, and the spread's been more than 30 points every single year. Yep. It's, you know,
1: the, the amazing thing to me is how, how much it's shrunk in uh, in the past few years I mean it's gone it's been as high as as 44 I think there's times where it's been a little bit over that yeah and they won by what
2: 55 that game or something
1: like that yep that was a huge win I mean this is a team that's beaten Colorado 70 to 3 in the past Um, and one thing that really amazes me about all this is how Colorado they had a poor game against Hawaii and when that game happened in the aftermath, I made a crack about how drinking the Kool-Aid is starting to make Boulder look like Jonestown. Yeah, really poor taste. But
2: shocking, Andrew has a poor to a taste in taste.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's gonna get me in trouble one day. But the point I'm making is, you know, you're saying people are cautiously drinking the Kool-Aid, and I kind of agree with that because in a way, I've been doing the same this week. I've been standing, you know, at the party with a with a cup of Kool-Aid in my hand, thinking. I might die
2: Kool-aid quote-unquote yeah,
1: like I might I might die if I drink this you know like this could be poisoned but it's been fun And I think that is the nicest thing about this. Football atmosphere feels like it's back at Colorado. People are getting excited for games again. People are getting pumped on stuff. And I think one really important part of that uh, has been the social media push that's been done not only by uh, the university and the athletic department, the SID department, but the Folsom Frenzy as well has done a really great job of pushing these events to make sure students know them. It generates hype. It gets people excited because that's been something that's been absolutely. Absent in years past even when there's reason to promo games
2: I will say the big difference between this and any year I've been in college you know the last few years is there's hope in the CU program there's some potential Ted Miller wrote an article today for ESPN in his blog about how there's hope at, there's hope again in Colorado you know we're we're sitting here predicting that the Buffs could actually maybe win a game against oregon. oregon no that's less. crazy yeah, that's oregon less. just went to the national championship game okay i know new year but oregon is the premier program in the pac-12 and there's no question about it there's no debating it oregon has been the class of the pac-12 since the pac-10 became the pac-12 and colorado is not on that same level
1: yeah absolutely so jake what what's your opinion about sefo and his shoulder injury
2: you know CeFO this week said in the press conference something really interesting in my opinion he said you know my shoulders gotten a little bit better you know it, it's feeling a little bit better five minutes later he's asked a question about his shoulder about the pain level and he said the pain is immense so Sefo really needs to overcome his shoulder injury in this game for the Buffs to succeed
1: Yeah, and I agree. So we are joined in here by Adam Amin from ESPN. Adam, how are you doing tonight?
2: A little technical difficulties here. Sorry.
1: Adam, you got us? Anything? Anything? This is why
2: we need Joe. Yeah, right? Joe's way better at running the board than you.
1: Yeah, I know, and like the worst way possible. Um, why don't you put it on no, a we speaker? Got him, we got hey, Adam, you got us? Yeah, I got you, man. There we go. Oh, there we Sorry go. Sorry about that. No problem. So, Adam Amin joining us from ESPN. If you guys don't know Adam, he is the. 2009 Jim Nance Award finalist has done work all over the place from ESPN ABC ESPN radio the SEC Network he has been a part of uh, Sports USA and doing their football coverage so Adam before we jump in to see you in the college football landscape I really have to ask how does it feel that at the age of of 24 you started calling NFL games and your name is now in the youngest broadcaster Role as you know, you're along guys like Bob Costas and uh, other really big, prominent names.
0: I miss being 24. I mean, (laughs) the answer to that question, man, I I, uh, it it wasn't that long ago, I know, and and not to not be grateful for it. I'm really lucky, man. It's, it's, I swear, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I mean, it was so cool to have that opportunity at 24 and, and to be able to call NFL games and now do MLB and and you know, big. Big college football, and and be able to. You know, I, I did my first ABC game uh, on uh, this past Saturday last week, and to have all that come before the age of 30, I mean, it's it's a it's a real blessing. I mean, you know, I I don't claim to, to be. Yeah, you know, I I, claim, I think I'm a hard worker. I think you know, I, I impressed some people when I needed to. But I mean, a lot of things, you know, were out of my control, and they they fell in my direction, and I was very lucky. in A lot of in a lot of regards so I, I swear I don't take that for granted and, and I'm really happy that I get to do this
2: you know Adam uh your Twitter bio says it's okay I've never heard of me neither how does a guy like <laughs> you uh play-by-play guy you know we, we all admire Chris Fowler here at Colorado how does a play-by-play guy like you get known you know become unique like a Gus Johnson a Chris Fowler uh you know a Brent Musburger how does a play-by-play guy do that
0: I think the most important thing is just to not try to be, you know, that those guys. I, I think being yourself is so important and, and what fits you and what fits your personality and what makes you feel comfortable. And, and the more you do it, and I know you guys are working on it now, the more you guys do this stuff, the more comfortable you'll feel and the better you'll feel about being yourself on the air. And it took a while. You know, I was – I didn't feel comfort- – this is my fifth year uh, at ESPN. I didn't really, like, find – my comfort level until like my third or fourth year, I swear, you know, and, and that, that, that was after like 300, 400 games on national TV, you know, it took a while for even, you know, at that level to figure out what, what am I good at, what do I suck at, what do I, get, what do I need to get better at, how can I say these things in my own personal voice, and and, and how can I feel good about myself uh, leaving a broadcast, and, and it took a while, and I think the best thing you can do is just try to find it on your own and not... Not try to be somebody else. Look up to the people you look up to. Take what works from those people and and put it into your own voice. But 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 being yourself is so 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 important. And the, and the common thread amongst all those guys and all the really great play-by-play guys in this business, men and, men and women, is just the preparation. They prep hard. They work hard. They they need. They try to know everything they can and apply what they're seeing. Uh, what they've studied to what they're seeing in front of them. And and the job is the same no matter what. You know, just sometimes the games are a little bigger and sometimes they're a little more exciting.
1: So you set a pretty good model for us, Adam, that's for sure. Now when you look at this game, uh, Colorado against Oregon, how much uh, about the Buffaloes did you know before coming out and taking the assignment?
0: You know, honestly, I think I'm a lot like a lot of people nationally that didn't really know the program very well. I covered Mike McIntyre when he was at San Jose State and I was a big fan of his. When he was the head coach there, you know, obviously the turnaround that he put together last uh, his last couple of years there, you know, he had a 12-loss season at one point out there, and he was able to turn it around into a double-digit win team. So I knew Mike pretty well. I had known Jim Levitt, know, uh, I'd cover the 49ers a couple of times in the last few years, and obviously I knew what he had done at South Florida, but I didn't know much about this team outside of maybe Nelson Spruce. He was the only guy that had maybe made some headlines nationally on a consistent basis. So I think I was a lot like a lot of people that didn't really know what Colorado football had become. We know the history. We know the great players that have gone through the Westbrooks, the Cordell Stewart's. We know those names, uh, but we didn't understand what this program was now. So to see the development of what Colorado is doing, and I know three games in a row may not be the most excitable thing or the most exciting thing, But it is something, and it's something that hasn't been done in seven years. So to have something like this, some modest success, you hope that it starts to translate towards something bigger. And knowing Mike McIntyre and knowing what the program could look like in a couple of years, I think that people should be excited about it, regardless of the outcome tomorrow night.
2: You know, Adam, you've learned a lot this week about the Buffaloes program. What are some of your biggest takeaways?
0: I think that... This is a program that has has bred a lot of really good players. I think we forget about that sometimes. I think we forget about the historic significance of what this program has meant to college football in general. And, again, like I said, I knew Mike going into this week, but to kind of see where he comes from, what he is now, and where the program is, is moving towards, and I think he's a really good recruiter. I'm a big Jim Levitt fan. I think the offense is in good hands with Brian Lindgren. I, I think that has really struck me. And really, I think Seppo struck me very, very much today when we got a chance to talk with him because he's a really, really impressive young man. And then I go back and look at the numbers that he's put together in a short amount of time in, what, I think it's 22 games at this point or 22 starts, my apologies. I, I think his name is going to be up there for a long time. I mean, he's already putting together an incredible historic career and he's still got time to go and his impressiveness as a young man really struck me as well so that's kind of what really hit me over the course of the last five or six days of reading up on this assignment that's really what's hit me so far
1: now adam the uh the one really interesting thing we were kind of talking about it a little bit earlier was we're unsure if the all the people you know like van pelt phil Steele's computer picking colorado over oregon uh we're unsure if they're Indictments on Oregon being on the way out or Colorado being on the way in. Um, You know, you're on the national scene. You're with, you know, ESPN, the mothership. So, what is your take on this? Is it more of Oregon kind of on a downside as opposed to Colorado on an up?
0: You know, I've been asked this question a couple of times this week, so I've had some time to think about it, and I think it's it is a combination of the two. But I will say, I think it has more to do with Oregon and the panic mode that people seem to go into when Oregon loses a football game or a couple of games. Let's not kill the duck dynasty, so to speak, You know, just yet. This is still an incredibly strong program that has way more to back it up than just a couple of losses signifying the end of it. I don't think we treat Alabama the same way when they lose a couple of games against good teams. I don't think we treat Big Ten programs the same way or look at them the same way when they lose a couple of games. And perhaps, if you want to call it West Coast bias, it probably is in some way. I don't know how to quantify that or qualify it either either or. But I do think that there is a little bit of national panic when Oregon loses a game. I don't think there should be. Uh, Will they make a playoff this year? Probably not. It's going to be tough for a two-loss team, even when the two losses are against two of the best teams in the country, Michigan State and Utah. But they're probably not a playoff team as it stands right now. But they're still one game into Pac-12 play. I mean, there's a long way to go in the season. So many things can happen. And Mark Halprich was specific with us this week when I asked him about that. You know, how do you respond to people saying that the dynasty is over, that the season comes to an end? He's like, the process that he's been through at Oregon is is something that has led to a lot of success. There's a reason they've won as many games as they have the last several years, and they've had so much success. Going to a couple of national championship games. There's a reason for that, and I don't think you can kill it. So, is it a little bit of an overshoot to think that heck, or Colorado is a seven and a half point underdog in this game, and that's it? When they've lost by 40 plus points each, let you know combined or on average in the last four years, maybe. But I do think it says more about Oregon and how nationally they're viewed as a program. It's still not one of the somehow truly elite among the elite, and I think that's a little bit disappointing, and I think that's not fair to the Pac-12 in general because they're too good to not garner that type of respect.
2: You know, Adam, although Colorado is up-and-coming, they're not seen as, you know, elite like Oregon is. Even, you know, Oregon may not be the elite of the elite, as you said, but they're still elite in the Pac-12. You know, for an up-and-coming program like CU, how big of a game could this be for CU's program moving forward considering that Oregon's, you know, combined – uh, point spread against Colorado the last few years is they've beaten Colorado by over 200 points, the last four years. Yeah,
0: 43 and a half is the exact average the last four games, fa- last four meetings, the four Pac-12 meetings that they've had. So I understand that this is a game that if all of a sudden Colorado wins, I'm not going to blame them for storming the field. You know what I mean? Like I, I heard some discussion <laughs> about that the other day, and I'm like, listen, if they want to storm the field against a team that has crushed them the last four years, I'm totally okay with it. But that being said. um, I think I think this is really a, a program changer, a, a, a paradigm shifter. I think this is one of those types of potential wins. If somehow Colorado wins this game, and I, I don't mean to make it sound like they have no shot or that it's a one shot, but if they win this game somehow tomorrow, I think it does sh- signify a shift in where the program is going. Every program, when they're rebuilding or when they're trying to – kind of shift the perception of what they are every program needs a win like this i know oregon's not ranked in the ap they're still ranked in the coaches poll but they're not ranked in the ap which is one that most people seem to look at so is it a victory over a quote-unquote top 25 team no but i think oregon was something like 27th in the polls you know they're they're just out top 25 is this a big win is that is it that type of storm the field get excited about the rest of the season type of win, absolutely it is. And every program needs a win like this when they're trying to turn things around. I think this would be a huge, huge win in the scope of Colorado football.
2: Adam, I can almost guarantee you the students will rush the field (laughs) if CU beats Oregon (laughs) on Saturday. But my question to you, and this is a little bit off topic from the game, but what kind of preparations go into a a broadcast if you know that there's a possibility at the end of the game the, the students will be on the field?
0: From my perspective, I've always, I've always tried to come up with something that signifies the moment or encapsulates the moment. It's not, I'm not one of those guys who's a great writer on the fly. I've had discussions with other play-by-play guys about this, and it's something that I'm working on, and I hope I get better at as I keep doing this job. But I've never been, I've, I've wanted to work on getting better at writing on the fly whether it's a phrase or a sentence, and not something that I write out beforehand and, and I prepare it. I don't, I've never prepared a line for anything, and I don't want to be that guy, and I don't think it's as organic and it's as natural and it doesn't sound as genuine if it's not done on the fly or you know, if it's not in the moment. So I've never wanted to write anything down, but if I see Colorado win this game, I'd like to have something to say that gives this moment context and encapsulates it and tells you what's happened and then shut up because anything that happens in front of us if it's a uh, you know if it's 50,000 people storming the field anything i say for at least a few moments anything i say is kind of superfluous and that's the point of of especially the the luxury of television sometimes is when you can't give anything that is better than what's happening in front of you or can't caption it any better than silence can then there's no reason to try to force it so I, I hope that if something great happens for Colorado tomorrow, I can encapsulate it in a phrase or a sentence or something and then just shut up and let everybody at home enjoy what's happening in front of them. Cause moments like these, I know sometimes it seems like they happen a lot. They really don't. They're few and far between and you're lucky to be behind a microphone. If you ever get a shot to, to see it happen.
1: And we'll be waiting with, with bated breath on the event or <laughs> off chance that that does eventually happen. Hopefully. Um, So when you look at the college football landscape, uh, there was a Sports Illustrated article that went out early this week that had a bunch of coaches talking about Oregon and the trouble that happened against Utah, and a lot of coaches seem to be saying that when Oregon first came out with this, you know, high-octane offense, that... It was hard to stop because people weren't ready for it. But now, in the age of speed offenses, people are ready to defend something like Oregon. So, do you see these speed spreads starting to um, kind of get slowed down, or Oregon's ability to run the clock, uh, run teams into the ground, start to you know slow down a little bit because of that?
0: I think uh, I think defenses have done a nice job of, of changing. A, how they recruit first off because you have to recruit different types of players now or more versatile, almost hybrid type of players now for your defenses. But I think defense have done a good job of shifting their focuses. I think, uh, you know, and Jim Levin and I talked about this earlier today because we we were discussing odd man fronts and even man fronts and the over coverage and under coverage, whether or not you understand what that means or not doesn't really matter. It's the fact that you're using different guys in almost different positions and giving different looks without having to substitute because before and, and still in the NFL it, you know if you want five defensive backs for a third down play you have time to substitute unless you're playing maybe Philadelphia or, or you know outside of one or two teams that really run a, an up-tempo type of offense in the NFL you have time to substitute college is kind of eliminated this the speed that you guys are talking about has kind of eliminated the ability to substitute on defense so when I'm a defensive coordinator looking at Oregon, Utah, Baylor, TCU, Texas Tech, a bunch of these teams that just up tempo you to death. All of a sudden, I've got to go out and recruit a hybrid defensive end linebacker who can put his hand down, play off the edge, be a normal, almost like a 4-3 type of defensive lineman, or he can stand up and back into coverage almost like a 3-4 outside linebacker. Not only do I have to get that guy, now I have to get the safety linebacker hybrid who I can use as a pass rusher or as a defensive back in a nickel. So all of a sudden, I can combat the speed and tempo because I don't have to sub as much because I have the base personnel that looks more like a nickel or a 3-4 than a standard 4-3 type defense. So not to get too inside and X's and O's with you guys, but that's kind of how it shifted in college football. And Jim Leavitt was talking to us about that earlier today. And I've had a number of defensive coordinators have that same conversation with us because that's how college football is going. It has caught up, or it hasn't caught up yet, but it's getting there. It's getting to the point of catching up and kind of slowing down some of the offenses that we are seeing today.
2: Adam, I want to I tell you about this one guy that CU has, and you, you, you talk about the nickel and how it's becoming so prevalent in college football. and CU shifted to the nickel as basically their base defense this year. Shadobi Awuzie on the Colorado defense is this like hybrid cornerback linebacker. and almost everyone in the CU media has agreed this guy's going to the league. Uh, I don't know what you've read about him. Uh, maybe you can tell us about that or what your perception is about him, but I'm letting you know you, you're gonna have fun watching this guy play tomorrow.
0: I mean, Jim raved about him, Mike McIntyre raved about him, and and understandably so. For somebody to be as—and it goes back to the exact same conversation that we were just having. You need those types of defensive players now. You need somebody who can play nickel and corner, or he can play nickel and outside linebacker, or be a fourth backer. And and it's important against a team like Oregon. Let's not forget, and let's not— Make the assumption that Oregon's a pass-only team. I, I, you know, and and I don't think anybody thinks that about them now, you know, right now. But in past years, because we've gotten so used to seeing the Marcus Mariota highlight reels, we just think of Oregon as well. Mariota just whipped the ball downfield, and he had all these big plays, and they could run you to death, and it's just an explosive offense. But they did it on the ground too, and they did it with a short passing game too. And you need to have defenders that can play both of those things. It helps when you're going up against a Royce Freeman like uh, Colorado is going to go up against tomorrow. It helps when you can take and they call him Cheeto in the in the defensive coach or in the coaching staff. <laughs> if you can take Cheeto, put him into the middle of the field, add an extra guy into the box. Now you're looking at a tougher spot for Royce Freeman to run in. Or you can back him off, place him out on the edge, play him against a wide receiver because he's fast enough and athletic enough to stay with a wideout. You can put him into the slot. You can move him just off the edge to cover a tight end if he's out there, or you can just have him play against the run. And I'm, or you can just have him rush the, rush the passer if you need him to and disguise that type of pressure and have somebody that you're not expecting to see come from your backside and try to blitz you. I'm so excited to see this guy based on what we've seen on tape. What we've seen, what we've heard from the coaching staff this week, I'm really pumped to see what type of hybrid guy we're looking at tomorrow.
1: So, Adam, we're going to let you go, but one more question before we do. The big storyline within the Colorado media this week has been Sefo Lufau's shoulder injury and whether or not it's really as bad as people uh, say or think it might be. So based on what you've heard and what you've seen, um, do you think in your opinion that it's bad? And also, how much of a role do you think that's going to play against an Oregon team that has a secondary that has proven to be really, really leaky?
0: I, I, you know, and and we talked with Seppo about that today, and he had, uh, or he, we had him kind of like move his shoulder around a little bit. He looked as if he was in no discomfort. If he is going to be in some discomfort tomorrow, I mean, you do what you do on the college football sidelines, whether it's a cortisone shot or whatever you need to do to kind of numb the pain. There's no actual, there's no real true injury there anymore. He's recovered from the injury. It's just the discomfort and the pain, he told us, is, is what's been bothering him if it has been bothering him at all. Last week, he didn't get to rep as much as he wanted to because he was resting up. He's gotten to rep normally just about at 100% all week long, and he feels confident. He told us he's confident in the deep ball. He feels like he can throw downfield and he can throw with some velocity and accuracy the way we're used to seeing him throw. You know, This is a guy who completes three out of every five, better than three out of every five passes he's thrown as a college football player. So, I'm expecting not much of an issue at all. He told us that the only way he could kind of re-injure it is if the same thing happened to him that happened in the Colorado State game where he awkwardly lands on it and it it, it hits the joint in the wrong spot and now all of a sudden it's a sprain. Unless something like that happens, I can't really see it affecting him over the course of a full 60-minute game tomorrow. And I asked him, I was like, well, is adrenaline going to play a role? He's like, it always does. And adrenaline can get me through a game if need be. You know, and, and just being pumped up about it. And he's not going to want to come out of a game. He doesn't like coming out of games. He doesn't want to take plays off. You know, he's, he's as tough as anybody Mac, Mike McIntyre has ever coached. Uh, I'm sure you guys have heard that quote uh, ad nauseum over the last couple of weeks. And I yep. believe it because, you know, for him to come out of the game uh, against Colorado State and come right back and throw a bomb to Shea Fields for a touchdown, that's super impressive. And that speaks a lot to that kid's toughness.
1: Adam Amin from ESPN. You guys can find him on Twitter, at Adam Amin, A-D-A-M-A-M-I-N. Adam, we really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to come talk with our uh, lowly college radio station. It's very much appreciated. And we're hoping you'll have that great call that you're talking
0: about. <laughs> I'm, I'm just sorry. It's not Brad Nestler for you guys this week. I'm sorry. I'm sure he would have been a little bit more out
1: date. Oh, come on. We, we love having you just as much. <laughs> Hopefully, we'll, uh, we'll be you seeing guys. around yeah, the yeah. box. Yep, appreciate it. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, guys. Have a good night. So that was Adam Amin from ESPN. And Jake, what what are some of your takeaways from what Adam
2: was telling us? Well, I liked uh, hearing, you know, because we're in the broadcast business, you know, just his personal take on what's going on in the broadcast business, how a young play by play guy gets it going and gets it cranking to his level because you know he's he's really at the top. You know, there's there's only a few more levels from where he's he's at and it's really good to hear someone as knowledgeable as him you know take time and talk to us and and let alone us uh the Buffaloes. you know he he said a lot of great things about about the buffs and you know his his perception is uh uh, on the national side and you know he's a little bit more uh, uh knowledgeable because he has been studying this team for a week you know his perception on the buffs is i think invaluable towards us because we really just gained a respect for why Phil Steele, Scott Van Pelt, and all these guys are picking the Buffs because they see an Oregon team that's reeling and a CU team that's on the move. And you know what? Maybe, uh, as he said, it's it's a little bit improbable that the Buffs win. You know, it's it's most likely that the Oregon's going to win this game. But you know, as he said, this is really the first time the Buffs have a real chance to be an Oregon team. You know, I think one
1: thing that he said really stuck out to me was the fact that um, you know Cepho really downplaying that shoulder injury with them, and it's something that's kind of been downplayed a bit this week but players i've talked to on the team this week it's ranged from it's not bad to i don't know to it's really bad so I'm i'm still uh i'm still confused and really unsure as to what the nature of sefo's uh looming shoulder injury is or what the rest of it is um i really think that this is the right time for sefo to kind of make himself a prominent player on the national stage and the stats have reflected it over the past couple years and I've, i've i've always liked him you know he's made me crazy sometimes but i've always liked sefo i know you i know you definitely do yeah um for a defense that's so leaky, for a secondary that is so uh in trouble and Don Pelham, the defensive coordinator at Oregon, says that they're gonna simplify schemes and uh you know, Ryan the minute he saw that tweeted at me and said, You know, anytime you're simplifying schemes it's not a good thing, which I agreed with. This is Cepho's chance. And there's so many deep threats that this Colorado team has. They can make Oregon pay in ways that we haven't seen happen in quite a few years.
2: (laughs) Well, you say there's so many deep threats on Colorado's team, and I I don't really believe you. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, Maybe Devin Ross is that guy, and we didn't see him in the Nichols game, but they really do need to find a guy to stretch a defense, and uh, maybe it's Dylan Keeney, because we even saw that play against CSU, but they need someone to stretch the defense, and Oregon has a lot of youth out in that secondary. See, the reason I say that there's so many
1: deep threats, so I don't mean, you know, like there's six deep in, in secondary threats, but I think that, Nelson, Spruce will always be he's a threat all over the field because he's such a good player he's a short yardage high volume type pass catcher but he can play that that deep receiver role sometimes Shea Fields we all know is a deep threat and Devin Ross I think this could be the game he steps into it he caught a long touchdown pass uh, against CSU in the Rocky Mountain Showdown is a beautiful throw uh, by Cepho and he could also be someone who steps into that role i kind of see him a little bit in that role already call me on the hype train but i think that those three guys are deep threats i guess, so not not six deep so many but i think there's enough to make this But they don't play. have the
2: the classic deep threat like a paul richardson is kind of what i'm well, going at they don't have a right, guy that really just stretches the field yeah you that's say fair run a run an, run an out route you know and, and you're gonna beat and everyone going, yeah. right um but you know i i think cepho has a huge opportunity here uh, to to keep cementing his legacy and I know I'm sounding a little you know uh, first take on that cementing his (laughs) legacy but you know even McIntyre said and this was the most ridiculous thing said in preseason uh, if Cepho makes a jump like he did last year from freshman year to sophomore year from sophomore year to junior year he's going to win the Heisman obviously that was the most ridiculous thing said ever he's not (laughs) far off if he does make a jump if he does improve in the last half of the season the last three quarters of this season Cepho can really become one of the top three greatest Colorado quarterbacks of all time and not only that lead Colorado to you know maybe six wins or seven wins if, if they're lucky so Cepho, I, I think this team really depends on Cepho. and depends on what they've done already to keep happening uh, a strong running game and a strong defense that's not letting up more than 30 points a game but if they have Cefo Lufau all of a sudden come in and really stretch out the f- stretch out the field he really only needs to hit one more pass a game than he's hitting right now that he's missing that's a 20yard completion mm-hmm. but I- if he does that if he's able to hit that one more pass he's able to get to that 300 yard mark and see who's rushing for 150 see who's going to win a lot of football games
1: I agree and you know the funny thing is the the big talk about Oregon this whole week is that they're going to be motivated they're going to be hungry they're going to be reeling after losing to uh, Utah in the way that they did but I'm really not sure. Having been. My family um, are Oregon fans. Uh, Full disclosure, conflict of interest, whatever you want to call it. My father is an Oregon alum.
2: And once again, you're wearing uh, a shirt that has some green on it again today. Monday you wore some, and of course today you you got the green on your shirt.
1: Oh, come on. It's like. It's like an off green. It's olive. They don't wear olive, but anyway, my, my dad is a is an Oregon alum. I grew up watching the Ducks, and you know I was a Duck fan probably up until my freshman year here. So I and I always watch them whenever I can, just because it's a force of habit at this point. This is a Oregon team to me that is facing a bit of an identity crisis because they don't have a a strong quarterback. In that role running the spread. And it's always been there. And whether or not you want to, you, you can debate how, to the degree of how good they were, but Darren Thomas was a pretty good quarterback. Jeremiah Mussoli was a pretty good quarterback in that system. We all know Marcus Mariota and how good he was in that system. The last time they've had uh, a quarterback struggle, in my opinion, Dennis Dixon. Dennis Dixon uh, blew out his knee in a year where I thought they probably would have won the national championship because that was the first year that the Chip Kelly offense really came into prominence. They fake a Statue of Liberty and fake Statue of Liberty in Michigan in the big house and blew him out, which I thought was incredible. And... Dennis Dixon injures uh, his knee against Arizona, comes out, and Ryan Leaf's brother Brady comes in to try and stop the bleeding, and it just wasn't the same team, and it was kind of a team in crisis. And... That is really the last time I've seen Oregon have this type of panic. I mean, there wasn't even panic like this uh, after they lost to USC at Austin, forty-four to ten. That was, of course, a year where uh, you know the Sanchez was playing with the Trojans, and it was they had the post or they beat Penn State in the Rose Bowl that year. But even then, there wasn't that much of an issue. I mean, there hasn't been an identity crisis like this at Oregon since the Dennis Dixon injury, and I think that people are kind of not realizing that enough. I mean, yeah, they're going to be motivated and hungry, but how motivated and hungry are you going to be when you have to ride Royce Freeman the entire game? Marshall's gone. Carrington is still out. Now yeah, Vernon Adams who's saying that he might not play because he has the sickle cell trait and he's playing at elevation. Jake Locke clearly wasn't a good enough stand-in for Mariota. If he was, he would have started those first few games. So there is a, I think there's a big identity crisis going on here in Oregon right now. Colorado
2: has a good chance to capitalize on it. And the big thing you mentioned there is the names are gone. This is the first time they've really struggled under uh, Helfrich from uh, Chip Kelly. They struggled under Chip Kelly in the past. This is the first time they've really struggled under their new head coach. And the reason it's so concerning, I think, for Oregon is because they don't have a real big leader to rely upon. They don't have the Marcus Mariota to go to. They don't have a killer defense to go to. They only have Isaiah Freeman. They need to rely on Isaiah Freeman to win a football game. Royce Freeman, sorry. (laughs) Isaiah Freeman. That's He went to high school with me. (laughs) He's a kid that went to high school with me. Um, I knew I was going to do that, too. Uh, Oh, man. That's a blooper reel for sure. Yes. (laughs) Anyway, continue. But they don't – there's so many spots on the Oregon football field where you're like, hmm, well – you know i don't really know how i feel about this guy whereas you would look around the field even last year you'd be like okay that guy's a stud. that guy can play football and th- there's there's a huge difference from that there's a huge difference from going to an above average player to even an average player and if oregon has a bunch of you know i, I know they're five-star defensive backs but if they're freshmen they're just not going to be uh you know coming into their first road pack 12 game they're not going to be that they're not going to do that well they're not going to be as strong and as smart as a guy like ken crawley just because ken crawley is is older you know ken crawley there's a huge difference in a body between an 18 year old and a 22 year old let alone the mental aspect so you're looking at those corners and if Cepha's shoulder's okay the buffs could really pick apart this oregon defense and i was reading on the oregon message boards this week the fans are concerned about oregon's durability and they're coming into altitude there's not a better time for Colorado to strike this Oregon team than right now. Everything is falling into place for the Buffaloes. Well, no, and I think the one thing that, you know, I mentioned it just a second ago,
1: and I don't think anybody has, has mentioned it enough. And had I been at the Tuesday presser, I was, I was working the Mark Sampson Invitational Men's Golf Tournament with Buff Vision, but I wasn't at the presser. And I, I really wanted to ask uh, head coach Mike McIntyre this. Oregon's top three receivers are all out. Devin Allen still injured from the uh, from the knee injury he picked up against Florida State in the Rose Bowl last year. Byron Marshall is now out. Uh, Darren Carrington is out. Those are your top three receivers, and people say that had they had Allen and Carrington, they might have beaten Ohio State. Which, as a pseudo Oregon homer, I kind of believe that too. But
2: he's so happy when this week is over. <laughs> so <I can> stop <laughs> saying that.
1: Yeah, um, it's it's a. It's really interesting to see because we have guys like Cheeto Bay, Ken Crawley, Tedrick Thompson. I mean even Ryan Muller had, had a really great game.'s been weeks. awesome. Yeah. But how
2: about even John Walker if they move Ogle Bode or Olu Bode? Uh, oh, say it with me. Olu oh, Bode. Bode. Yes, um, there we go. If they move uh, you know if they move around their secondary a little bit and their defense a little bit, all of a sudden you got John Walker in there and I trust John Walker. Yeah, so I do I do too. They're deep in the secondary. They really are. And you you've had times where uh, Evan White's playing or uh, Laguda, mm-hmm. Afolabe Laguda. How can I get that right but I can't get Lugu- uh, uh Bode? There we go. <laughs> You're getting uh, there. Yeah, I'm getting there. <laughs> uh, but but they really are deep in their secondary and if Oregon's going out there with their fourth, fifth, and sixth wide receivers, yes, they're recruited higher than than Colorado's, and they probably have more talent, but they don't have the in-game experience of a mm-hmm. Nelson Spruce or a Shea Fields. They don't. Well, and, I, and the one thing that I think is so interesting about
1: this is in years past, we've looked at individual matchups of Oregon and CU and thought, okay, first-string guys – so much better. Second string guy so much better just in terms of talent, in terms of size, in terms of readiness to play on a big stage. Now the script is kind of flipped a little bit, even for just this week only, that I'm more confident in some elements of Colorado's team than Oregon's. And, you know, yes, this is Kool-Aid. I mean, it, it really is. But when you break it down, there is reason to believe that Colorado could win this game. And I will be the first to admit I was totally, totally, totally wrong about Vernon Adams. I thought Vernon Adams was going to step into that quarterback role, and he was going to be great, because I thought he was great at Eastern Washington, I thought he played well against Pac-12 competition there, I thought he was one of those diamonds in the rough that just happens to slip through the cracks the way Addison Gillum would have been if he hadn't... Uh, come over to Colorado with Mike McIntyre. I was wrong about Vernon Adams. Maybe I'm wrong about this too, but when you break it down position by position with all the things that are going on with Oregon's program right now, the mental aspect of what must be going on, elevation is also a
2: factor. There's really good reason to believe that
1: Colorado could win this game.
2: You know, my boss Ryan has been talking all week. Like, I wish my I was Ryan. Yeah, <laughs> Ryan Koningsberg. He's been saying all week, I wish I was at Oregon practice. And I agree with him. It'd be really interesting to see if they're like, okay, we're going to get up from this and we're really going to punch Colorado in the mouth or, you know, we're moping around. Uh, And I really think a big aspect of this game, this game might be decided in the first 10 minutes. If Colorado comes out and punches Oregon in the mouth, I have a really good feeling Oregon will lay down. So Colorado needs to come out and really just go for it go you know balls to the wall right away you know they need a quick score they need a stop and they need another score if they go up 14 to nothing Folsom will be rocking and they will have a really good shot to beat Oregon but you know if all of a sudden Oregon scores a touchdown and we're looking at the end of the first quarter and it's something like 10 to 3 or something Oregon's going to be confident that they can win a football game well the thing
1: about Oregon too is you saw it against Florida State in the Rose Bowl last year the minute they pick up speed you you're done you've lost and that's the one thing in every game that they have lost on a big stage it hasn't been because they can't handle the bright lights or they don't have the talent equivalency i mean i i will always contend that oregon's two years where they went to the national championship were years where they played unbelievable fluke teams you had cam newton who was an nfl quarterback and Nick Fairley, who is an NFL defensive tackle, and then you had Ohio State, who, by and away, was probably an NFL team at some point last year. Um, so you know, when you look at those teams, Oregon can they can get you hard. Phrasing, they can they can really get at you um, and make it hard for you if you let them get out too early. And you saw it against Florida State. The minute they scored one touchdown, uh, got that ridiculous meme fumble of uh, on Jameis Winston, that got brought back to the house. Then all of a sudden, it starts to roll. Martin Mariota hits Carrington in stride. He's wide open, touchdown. All of a sudden, it's a total blowout. Uh, Ryan Thorburn, who uh, was a former Daily Camera writer and is actually the Ducks beat writer at the Register Guard now in Eugene, his third point on his three keys to the game article today is don't let the Buffaloes believe. And I think that's a huge, huge piece of this is the fans need to be involved in this from kick. They need to be there early. And if you are a fan listening, this is really for the students because I know that the the older community is a lot smarter than most of our student populace right now. But you guys need to dress If it gets cold, because at the Arizona State game, blackout game two years ago, it got cold. It was a seven-point game, and people were thinking, "Oh, I'm freezing. I'm leaving."
2: It's pretty warm in the press box, though.
1: It was. It's always it's always warm in the press box. But that's why you know it it comes back to my point of there needs to be uh, Colorado really needs to make sure that Oregon doesn't jump out anything early. I you know I echo that point completely. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and, you know, I think Colorado, Oregon really can't let Colorado believe, as, you know, so, Thorburn yeah, said, put it, yeah. but, you know, the thing we've noticed with Colorado this year is you look at the second quarter or the third quarter of that Hawaii game, you look at after the Moeller interception and in the UMass game, you look at that stretch in the second half of the CSU game, and you look at the, the right after the second half of the Nichols game, as soon as Colorado's offense gets going, they go. There was a stretch in that umass game where they scored on seven consecutive drives and there's a stretch in that colorado state game where all of a sudden colorado looked like world beaters and there was a stretch in that Nichols game you know granted the the opponent but there's a stretch in that Nichols game where colorado looked like they really could not be stopped so colorado if oregon lets colorado get going oregon's going to be be in a lot of trouble because colorado and we've been saying this every single time we've been on air can be a really hot football team when they get hot. And don't let them get hot if you're an opponent. You really have to shut Colorado down. And once again, you know, Seppo's the key to this game, but I keep coming back to the running game. And we're probably not going to see Michael Adkins or Patrick Carr in this game, so it's up to Christian Powell, Philip Lindsay, and Donovan Lee to really establish a run game for the Buffaloes. And I think it, that
1: also comes down to that offensive line. I mean, we've talked all year about how there are more bulldog run blocker type guys you know they're not guys like Daniel Munyer who might have been a little bit more technical pass blocking type players these guys want to get in the trenches Shane Callahan you know he wants to get in the trenches and he wants to get at these players and establish the run game well you know right now Colorado averages 272 yards on the ground 5.3 yards per rush Oregon on the opposite side is right with him 285.3 5.9 per rush and You know we haven't well we mentioned him a little bit, but uh, Royce Freeman is going to play a huge factor in this game. And Colorado, a team that has had trouble with open field tackling, uh, trouble wrapping on first contact, getting hats to the ball on first contact, they really, really really need to make sure that that is shored up this week because if you can't tackle a guy like Dawkins at CSU or or the ground and pound guys that Bobo was putting on the Buffaloes that week you can't hope to tackle a guy like Royce Freeman who you know he's built like he's built
2: like a faster Christian Powell we asked Jared Bell this week what was the key to the game if you do this one thing Colorado will win the game Said stop Jared, uh, stop, stop Isaiah Freeman. Or sorry, Royce Freeman. I, I caught myself. But he said stop Royce <laughs> Freeman. And you know, from. Uh, you also said it, stop Jared Bell. Yeah, I did too. <laughs> from an average fan's perspective, that might seem like, okay, well, yeah. Yes. But from our perspective, mm-hmm. They just gave away their game plan. That's what they're going to do. Colorado's defense is going to be all over Royce Freeman. They are going to do whatever they possibly can to stop Royce Freeman. Almost to a point where I'd be like, okay, what other weapons does Oregon have? And you're looking around and they don't really have another established weapon. So it makes sense that Jim Levitt's defense is going to attack Royce Freeman. Because if they stop Royce Freeman, all of a sudden their heads are down and what else do they do? Lock these in, in in panic mode and they don't really have a go-to wide receiver to throw to. So the Colorado defense needs to stop Royce Freeman and if they do that, as Jared Bell said, Colorado will win this football game. You know the one thing that I think is really interesting is the fact that the,
1: this coaching staff, um, not the GAs and assistants, but the the OCDC and Mark Helfrich, the head coach at Oregon, you know, they, they really haven't seen much adversity in their careers here. I mean, Mark Helfrich took over for Chip Kelly. Scott Frost came on the staff. Don Pelham was promoted um, after the mastermind, Nick Agliotti, uh opted to retire. And since the three of them have been in a coaching staff position as a group, they really haven't seen many issues, many problems. And I think that is going to hurt uh, a team like Oregon a lot because – I I'm a believer in if you've been kicked down a few times, you know how to continue to get back up, and I think that's the one thing about this Colorado team is that now that they have at least a taste for winning, and they've learned how to get back ex- up. Exactly, you know the the biggest issue in the past couple of years has been. They don't know how to win They don't know how to get back up As you put it Um, They they don't know What it takes to When you get pushed down You know You gotta Get one foot back up Yep You gotta get on a knee Push one foot Push the second Stand back up Now they know how to do that Oregon's a team Who's on the other side Of that spectrum They don't know what to do when you get knocked down because they've really never been all that knocked down before they lost to ohio state they had one kind of fluky loss to to arizona last year um the past couple years have been you know one or two lost seasons which it's really easy to, to put yourself in the mindset of getting back up when you're you know taking one loss on the on the year but when you drop to michigan state which there's no you know there's no fault in a loss like that michigan state's a very good team but then you take a loss a blowout loss to utah then your head is kind of spinning like okay we're gonna get back up and then you get you know knocked out one more time and you're sitting on the ground to you know as a boxing reference and the ref's calling your numbers it's your eight, nine, yeah you're like nine. unsure if you are if you're gonna get back up and i think that this coaching staff um I'm interested to see how they jump uh, into this game because if the coaching uh, style from from Frost, from Pelham, from Halfridge is aggressive, then I'll know as as somebody watching this that you know they they fully intend on getting their players back. But if it's conservative out of the gate and it was and it's been conservative in games that they've struggled in. Then I'll know that they're a little in over their heads. I've always thought a guy like Pelham, uh, you know, a career guy at Oregon, was a bit in over his head getting that um, job because a it's a tough job to take because you're not recruiting the best defensive players. You're in the shadow of your offense. And Nick Aliotti was really a genius um, on that defensive side of the ball. He could have coached an SEC defense and he would have been a legend. So Pelham, I thought, was in over his head because he was a career guy. Scott Frost came in, and it's never easy to be an OC of an offense that's really that much of a well-oiled machine, but it's easy when you have Marcus Mariota because he covers up so many mistakes. Helfrich, the jury's still out on Helfrich. I think he did a good job uh, when Chip Kelly left of kind of keeping the ship in the right direction. It could have easily collapsed. It could have easily sunk, but it didn't. Um, But now we're in a weird spot of now what can Mark Helfrich do because Chip Kelly, after the season that uh, they had when Dixon got hurt, they came back the next year with Jeremiah Masoli, and they just started pounding on teams again. It was like nothing had ever happened. So...